you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious. Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. I am thrilled to be here today with Trisha Maltalvo-Tim. Trisha is a board director, venture investor, speaker, and author. She is a first-generation Latina who rose through the ranks of Silicon Valley, advising high-tech companies big and small, culminating in the sale of data analytics software company Looker to Google for $2.6 billion. Trisha is one of the few Latinas to obtain the triple achievement of reaching the C-suite, joining the boardroom, and cracking the venture capital ceiling. She is the author of the new book, Embrace the Power of You, through which she hopes to inspire anyone who has ever felt like an other in the workplace to embrace their true selves, own their identity, and achieve success and fulfillment in their life and career. Trisha, welcome to the show. Thank you, Kathy. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. I'm really excited to talk about the book. I loved reading it. It's so packed with great information. And of course, your beautiful story, which I will say you've shared that in the book, you know, you share your story and other people in the audience were crying. You brought tears to my eyes just reading the book. (laughs) And I think, you know, what's interesting, Trisha, is that, you know, in the intro, you proudly and boldly claim your Latina heritage, and yet Mm -hmm. it took you time to do that. The book takes us, as I said, on your personal journey of really embracing you and fully stepping into yourself at work and in life, rather than continue to hide yourself. Mm -hmm. So why did you, for so many years, hide yourself and why do others hide parts of their identity at work? Such a great question, Kathy. And yeah, I think to take everyone back to how how did I get to that moment? Um, So a little bit of background on myself. Uh, So my uh, mother is from El Salvador and my father is from Ecuador. Those are the the lines that you refer to. Uh, And we, um, they were immigrants to this country, moved to Los Angeles. I was born in Los Angeles and they wanted a better life for me and my sister. So the American dream, if you will. And so they moved us out of Los Angeles into the suburbs of um, San Fernando Valley. And suddenly I was popped into a predominantly white community, um, being a Latino family. And they had unfortunately been subject of a lot of discrimination. They had thick, heavy Spanish accents. And so in order for us to have a better life, in their perspective, they thought the quicker I assimilated, the quicker I blended in, the better life I would have and the better opportunity I would have. And so from a very young age, they really encouraged me to blend in, downplay where I was from. At the time, um, San Salvador was in the Civil War. So, you know, that was their advice. And so I started creating that armor from a very early age and carried that through school 
and through my career. And the result of that was being in rooms where I would hear statements uh, that were, you know, derogatory potentially or unflattering to my culture and whatnot. And so fears started, um, I started getting fearful of talking about where I was from because I sat in rooms where I heard comments that maybe my, where I came from was lesser than. And so after accumulation of two decades of that, the fear becomes very real. Um, and there is a, a fear that you will be less credible, that you will not be accepted, that you will be treated differently. And, and because I had hid for so long, I also felt shame, honestly, shame that I didn't proudly talk about my family and how can I now, you know, especially given the push for diversity right now, I felt like I would be criticized for, um, let's say, taking advantage of the opportunity to be diverse. Um, and so that fear was a real one as well. So all these fears um, came together at the same time where I was reclaiming my identity and had to make a choice. It's so interesting when you think about it, so many immigrants to this country, right, are taught to assimilate. And then really for so many of us, we're also assimilate into the culture and assimilate into the environments within which we operate. And I can understand also these multiple tensions you were feeling around being fearful, that shame. And, you know, as I was reflecting on the book, you helped me realize that part of what I'm hoping for, even with sustainable amb ambition and where it intersects with what you're pulling through is this idea of like, to be more honest about who we are, what we want, what's present in our lives and about what we need to sustain ourselves. And it reminded me of what one of my former guests, David Brown said in episode nine, he said, there really isn't a sustainable option other than to be yourself. And I was curious if that would resonate with you at all. 100% resonates with me now. I would say an earlier version of myself would challenge it uh, because I don't, you know, depending on where you are in your career and the environment that you're in, there is real risk showing up as your authentic self. Um, it may not be welcomed. It really might um, close doors and opportunities for you. Uh, and so the journey is to get to the place where you can withstand that, whether you can come up boldly and talk about, you know, who you are and why you're there and potentially leave um, if that's not going to be a place that's going to support you. Um, and in some moments in our careers, we might not have the choice um, or the tools or the support to get through those challenging times. Uh, but I, my thesis is that eventually at some point you get to the place where the benefits outweigh the risks and you're willing to take those risks and move on because the only way I believe to be truly um, successful and fulfilled is showing up authentically. This was something I was really curious to ask you because I, I can appreciate this tension that you're bringing up. And I was curious, like if you thought that you, if you stepped into yourself earlier, you still would have been successful. And so I'm, I'm curious about that because that's kind of what you just said, this tension that people have to stand in, which is, are you at a moment in time when you feel like 
it's safe for you to do that. And I don't know if safe is the right word, but you know, if you thought like, if you started to show up as your authentic self earlier, do you think you still would have been successful? I think it depends on whether I, again, back to what I was saying earlier, whether I had the right mindset and tools around me to get through it. Uh, I think if I think back and I talk about this in my book, when I had my first daughter, um, uh, the company I worked at was a predominantly male uh, leadership team. Um, there were no women in leadership. I was the only woman and the only woman who was giving birth and having going on maternity leave. And so in that moment, I don't think that I, if I, in, in, let's say, embraced my whole self, came in, talked loudly about being a mother, um, created the boundaries I thought I needed, I probably would have been pushed out. It would not have been the place um, that would have been the right place for me. Now, I think if I had the tool set, I would have recognized that it's not the right place for me. And I would have made the decision to that might be a place I need to move on from. And it's, it's you know, let me find a more supportive place. So I think in that re regard, I would be happier because I would have moved on um, because I ultimately stayed in a, in a very um, toxic, let's say, environment for probably five years um, because I felt like I had no choice. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. Like, you know, you kind of have to make these trade-offs or assessments and you are talking about having this toolkit, you know, to support oneself. Can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think there there's definitely a toolkit that we all need to create. And, you know, in your toolkit, um, one of the tools is find your people. Um, and your people are a number of different people in your life. Um, I would say a personal champion. Uh, that's somebody who could be a partner, a family member, um, I, even a therapist, somebody who, you know, only has your best interests at heart, um, who is there when you hit moments of struggle, of doubt, of uncertainty, who will remind you of the value you bring, your accomplishments, your achievements. Um, having that person in, in your corner um, is crucial when you hit sort of these crucible moments. Um, another person in your, um, in your community should be a mentor or a sponsor. Uh, oftentimes, as we navigate our careers, um, we don't know what we don't know. And at being a first-generation professional, I didn't know a lot. Um, I did not have a family member or a friend uh, who could, uh, you know, give me the um, roadmap to how to navigate office politics, how to show up in an interview, and all of these different things. So having um, a mentor or a sponsor who can, you can, you know, pick up the phone and call is critical. And lastly, I would say find your community. Um, for me, finding a community of people that were of similar identities, uh, being a working mother, being a woman executive, being a Latina, all three different identities, but each of them having their own lived experience um, provides uh, a feeling of being less lonely. Like the things that you're experiencing are true. Oftentimes, you know, people might... Um, dismiss some of your concerns or thoughts or how you're feeling or being treated. But when you be, go around in a, in a, or belong in a community of similar liked interests, 
um, you realize that you're not alone and this is a very um, common thing. So I think finding your people is a really key component to, to your toolkit. Mm, community is so, so important on so many levels. I would love to contrast talking about like some of the costs of like hiding oneself and then some of the benefits of, you know, being one's authentic self. One of the things that you talk about in the book is the energy it takes to hide, to code switch, to handle microaggressions. I think many people don't realize the amount of energy and the cost that comes along with that. And so as I think about sustainable ambition, I'm like, wow, if one is spending so much energy and that can be quite draining for people to be spending time in these ways. So can you tell us a little bit more about these costs or this the energy that goes into this and how stepping into being one's authentic self can kind of free up that energy? Yes, it's a tremendous toll. And I thank you, Kathy, for pointing out that not everyone may realize it. I think one of the things um, around and you know diversity equity inclusion training is recognizing our unconscious bias and i think when i have these types of conversations with people um i get the question sometimes like well just show up here as your authentic self what's the big deal um and my response to that is you it's because you haven't lived in someone's lived experience to know why they're why they're feeling the need to change uh, and there's a reason that somebody may be code switching um, and that might be decades of things they hear in the media, in the culture, in their peer groups of why they might not belong and why they may be an other. And so that energy of when, for example, I tell this story in the book, when I was younger, when I would go to a business event, for example, I'd walk in the room and I would evaluate. I have this sort of scan, evaluate, and adapt process. I would scan the room, recognize who's there, who I'm going to talk to, how am I going to show up, what do I need to do? And if I was talking to a male leader in my industry, I would sit up tall. I would talk about the latest trends in the stock market, what's happening with enterprise software, um, and be very industry business-oriented in my conversation. If I was talking to his spouse, let's say, my demeanor would change. I would soften. We would try to find relatable conversation around the kids, the, the PTA, fun, latest nonprofit or fundraising activity, um, whatever that may be. And then if I was talking to someone younger, a younger gentleman starting in their career, we'd talk about sports, uh, grab a beer, you know, like. And so there's constant, and before I even showed up at the event, I would decide how should I wear my hair? What should I, what should my clothes be? Um, for years, decades, I straightened my hair because my belief was that it was more professional um, in the workplace and that my sort of curly hair um, would make me, you know, uh, just less credible. So there were all these decisions, whereas I, you know, my husband is, is white male. He just walks into the room and just talks. You know, he does not spend a minute thinking he's unafraid to talk about his kids with his male leader counterpart. He's unafraid to talk about, you know, um, the industry with, um, you know, the spouse of somebody. You know, he's just he just has the conversation without thinking about it. 
I'm curious, you're bringing up for me how we all can kind of show up in those conversations differently. Is there a way that you would counsel us to start to either become more aware or how can we be different in those conversations so that if we were meeting you in those situations, Trisha, that we make it more comfortable for you so that someone like you doesn't feel like they need to be code switching so much? That's a great question. And I love that because it talks about how do we create more inclusive spaces? Uh, And I think be curious, you know, be curious about somebody, try to find, um, ask good questions about, you know, what they may be interested in, what brings them joy? What was the you know, what thing that they did this weekend that was fun? Um, because I think you start learning about people. We're more alike than we are different. Um, and I think sort of breaking down those barriers and, you know, um, making a connection with somebody allows them to start showing up a little bit more um, of themselves rather than, you know, the armor that they may have put up. Mm, I really love that. I love that. And Really, I mean, it's such wise counsel for any conversation. I think about that so often when I go into conversations, which is is exactly that. Just be curious and ask ask good questions. I think it's yes. such sound advice. You know, I love how you write in the book. You have a quote, you write this sentence, which I might have modified just slightly, but you write, you will find that walking around the world as who you truly are is a breath of fresh air. I just love how you wrote that. It really hit me. And so I was curious if you could share, like, what is so powerful about embracing you and showing up as your authentic self? I would say not only for me does it lessen the toll of having the energy that we just talked about, of having to change who I am um, and the fear of the environments I'm going to be in, um, but what unexpected joy I got from it was how it gives permission to others to be more themselves. Uh, the When I finally did tell my story at my company and talked about my Latino heritage and my family and uh, all of that, the, the tears that you mentioned were from other Latinas that were in the audience that said to me, I see you in me. And I didn't think that was possible. I didn't realize that I could show up as a Latina and make it to the leadership levels. And so for me, showing up authentically and the visibility around it is allows others to bring their authentic self to the workplace. And so I find that that is so beneficial for our society because we need those diverse perspectives and thoughts in the room And if you're showing up in the room with all your armor and blending in, we're never going to get those different perspectives and thoughts in the room. So I think it's the impact of it that, for me, brings me the most joy. It's so great. Well, and you just, I don't know why this hadn't hit me before, Tricia, but I... Um, I work in the marketing and branding space. So that's been the past in my career. And there's all these examples of um, marketing campaigns that have gone out that where they've made some missteps, right? And they were like, oh gosh, somebody wasn't in the room. Mm -hmm. And what you're making me realize is two things. One is that there may not have been somebody in the room or you didn't give, provide enough psychological safety for them to actually be able to speak up. And so I hear what you're saying. It's like, we need that diversity of thought, those people who are willing to speak up and be able to say, 
this is not going to land well. Um, But depending on the culture and the environment, even if you have those people in the room, it's not a guarantee that they're going to feel safe to do so. And, And you just nailed it. And if we, in part of the reason I wrote this book was to have this type of conversation so that managers and leaders can have that exact aha moment. Um, Because one strategy for that particular situation you just mentioned is when you're around the room collaborating on an idea, everyone sort of get, you know, going around and, and, and going it all in on the idea that sort of everybody's mentioning. When strategy is a manager, you can say is, okay, now what is the opposite of that? I want to hear the opposite of that idea or a different idea because what that does is it doesn't put the onus on the one person that might have the idea, but is now realizing his or her voice is the lonely, only soul voice and may be afraid to say it. But if you invite the group and challenge the group to say, let's let's just take the opposite idea what does that look like? Let's talk about that. It invites that others to bring in diverse opinions into the group. Mm, I love that. I love that. Well, and you have throughout the book, which I really appreciate all the, the kind of reflection questions for individuals, but also guidance for business leaders. And I was reflecting on this earlier this morning where I was like, oh gosh, this would be a great like book club book, if you will, but like really for an entire team to read your book and then to have a conversation about it. And I'm wondering if you're thinking about it in that context as well. I am. And thank you for pointing that out. It, I think the book is written for the reader going through their journey to self-acceptance. So you'll find in the book, my story and the story of other executives, um, which I believe creates connection for the reader, but also empathy for someone who may not have lived that experience because they're actually seeing what it might have felt like to have experienced some of these situations. And so by building that empathy, then as managers and leaders, you can start in that dialogue. And so at the end of each chapter, I've managed strategies that say, okay, now after a bit of storytelling, you can see now why somebody might be you know, have a lot of armor or might not be bringing their whole self to work. What can you do as a manager to create a more inclusive environment? And here are some strategies. So I think it's for both the leader and the manager, as well as for somebody who's trying to get on the other side of their fear and to show up authentically. And you just gave us one example of like how they can elicit diverse thought. Do you have any top tips? Like where should people start if they're kind of fumbling, if you will, or this is a new space for them? You know, and so many leaders are being called forth in this way and rightly so. Do you have some places where you point them to start out? Yeah. You know, I think starting out is really examining your own unconscious bias. Um, It's, we all have them and we continue to have them. And, and I learn, I, I'm always learning of new and different blind spots. So I think uh, realizing that that's human nature uh, and realizing that without judgment, uh, a lot of times in this conversation, there's a lot of judgment. Um, and when and we're all and recognizing we're all going to make mistakes. Um, this is an evolving conversation and it's okay to make a mistake. Um, learn from it, be curious, apologize, be accountable. I think, you know, one of the... 
I would say blessings of being in both spaces. I'm in, I would say in both spaces um, is that I, when I'm in spaces of um, the communities of color, you know, what I hear from them is, you know, we just, you just want people to continue to learn. We don't expect people to be perfect. Um, so if someone makes a mistake, own it and, you know, acknowledge it, apologize and, and we can move on. Um, but I think there's a lot of fear um, about getting it wrong. And so then people are stifled into inaction. Um, and so they freeze. They don't want to say anything. They don't want to get it wrong. Um, and I think that's where the the mistake lies, because um, I think um, those of us in, in communities of color want to have these conversations and we want um, and that's the, the, the path forward. I really appreciate that. And I will just admit, so I'm half Hispanic and yet like I, um, I think I still with certain in certain topics and in these conversations, I will just admit I get tongue tied, Tricia, and I do get tripped up. And I'm thankful that I have one friend in particular who said, you know, she's black and she said, you know, I've been talking about race all my life. Yeah. You know, the rest of you haven't been talking about race. You're you're way more uncomfortable with it. And she generously, and I do, I do think this, she, including others, I think are quite generous in what you just said and being like, I want to just have these conversations and we're just hoping that you learn and grow and get better, admit your mistakes as you're saying. And so I'm tremendously grateful for that. And yet I appreciate what you're also sharing in this, even for myself to give myself a little bit of compassion yes, around yeah. like, oh gosh, I do get tongue tied and I get so nervous about getting it wrong. And yet you're also saying, this is part of our human nature. We have these biases yes. and we need to accept them and kind of, as you're saying, step into continual learning around yes. it. Yes, and we are all gonna make mistakes and I still get it wrong. And I still, even when microaggressions happen in that mo exact moment, I still realize I stayed quiet and let it pass. And, it, and I know from doing this work, that my responsibility is to interrupt it, to challenge it, but it happened so quickly. And I was, oftentimes I get kind of shocked. <laughs> and so I sit there a little shocked that someone's just said whatever they might've said. And then I feel shame that I didn't interrupt or I didn't go to someone's um, help. Um, so this is a journey for, for all of us. And I think if we can normalize the fact that, you know, we're not gonna get it wrong, um, or, or right all the time, um, the leave, relieves a little bit of the pressure. Mm, mm, I appreciate that. Well, one topic I, I wanted to make sure I covered with you was this idea about life stage, having kids and the idea of wave theory that you pull forth in the book. This really resonated with me and you alluded to it earlier, your experience, and I want to pull this through. And I, I just want to be transparent here. I don't have children. And yet I've been passionate about this idea for some time. It's actually informed some of sustainable ambition and this idea that one's ambitions can ebb and flow over time and with life stage. And I've been thinking about it really it crystallized way back when, when Amory Slaughter's article um, in the Atlantic came out, Why Women Can't Have It All. This was 10 years ago. And then mm -hmm. her book came out, Unfinished Business, that came out in 2015. And one of the things that just shocks me is how corporate America still doesn't accept that humans have families, that they have children, they have older parents. You know, Scandinavian countries are, are way more progressive mm -hmm. in this area. And 
you share in the book how you had to pretend not to be devoted to your children at work. You alluded to that earlier and you call it this invisible family problem. I mean, what do you think needs to change in this arena? <laughs> oh my gosh, a lot needs to change. And I, you know, I think I'm hopeful. I think things are changing. I think COVID forced that. We all of a sudden had a visual of everyone in their homes and the chaos that happened. So um, I think it got accelerated, but yes, I talk about the invisible family uh, because when I had my two daughters, um, I was the only woman in leadership. It was um, a pretty toxic environment, to be honest. And I felt like I couldn't be visible as um, as a mother. Uh, my daughter had colic when I uh, when she was born. She also wouldn't take the bottle when I um, was transitioning back to work. She would only nurse. And one week back into maternity leave, you know, my boss says I need to travel when I had never traveled before uh, to Brazil. And I thought, well, uh, I, you know, I can't bring the baby and she needs a bottle. You know, she needs to nurse. I can't do that. And it was a very difficult conversation. A lot of resistance. We were incredibly, my husband and I had um, an incredibly hard time, stressed, trying to get this baby on the bottle. Um, he would often have to drive to all of my office meetings and I would secretly nurse in the garage because she wouldn't take the bottle. Like all of these things were placed on me. Um, and on top of all of that, had to show up with a smile on my face, you know, pretty suit on and, and solving the day's problems. Um, so there's a tremendous amount that our families uh, parents uh, and families have happening at home. You know, right now, my parents are elderly. And so I am constantly worried about them. I've had moments I've had to take time off for them, you know, to take care of them. Um, a lot of um, working people have family members with disabilities, kids with disabilities. I mean, there's a number of different things that are happening at home. And I think that the workplace that recognizes that we are not one dimensional, but multi-dimensional people and make the connection and support our employees through their life events, um, they will be the ones that win in the new workforce. They will be the ones that are going to really keep the engagement and loyalty of their workforce. Mm, I love that. Yeah, I have this hypothesis, Trisha, and I want to put it out there and see. And you actually have an example in a story in your book that kind of relates to this that I really loved. I have this hypothesis around pacing. So, you know, often within organizations, they rate people from a performance perspective on performance, but also on potential. But I... I think what gets confounded in that in some respects in this regard is this idea that I'm playing with around pacing. It's like, what if you allowed people to still be high potential and pace the, how they perform mm. in the workplace and or find mm. ways, like they're not penalized if they go to part-time or they do a job right. share or something like that. I appreciate that I was at Clorox at a time and working there when job share people got promoted, when a woman who was working part-time got promoted to VP, it, people weren't penalized for that. Yeah. But, you know, that didn't necessarily continue. So it's really interesting. And I loved Elena Donio's story. I don't know if I'm pronouncing yes. her cor name correctly and how she struggled to find a way for pacing her work, but she also had a great leader and boss who saw her potential, didn't penalize her, created a space for her. So I'm curious if you could share a little bit about that story and just 
what you think about this idea and if there's a way for organizations to, you know, flex a little bit in this way. Yes. I love that idea of pacing. I think that's perfect because we go through seasons in our life, uh, you know, where there are moments where we can be all in and moments we need to dial back. And I think this idea that you have to be all in all the time um, is unattainable. Uh, so yes, there are moments where because of life events, you might need to go to flex time or part time, um, or even if it's just a, you know, a leave of absence for one week or a month. Uh, and I think that absolutely, if the employer can notice and integrate that as part of the um, evaluation of an employee, again, it goes back to how is that employee um, going to be engaged and connected with the company? Um, employees have choice now. And with especially now with hybrid and remote possibilities, um, there is a wide range of possibilities that employees might have. So I really do encourage employers to be looking outside the box of from the traditional uh, you know, workplace, nine to five, hundred percent. Let's keep our fingers crossed that companies yeah. are listening and are I taking know. action on this. I continue to be shocked that like the movie, I mentioned this often on podcasts, like the movie nine to five came out in 1980, you know, over, you know, so long ago. And yet things haven't changed. Anne-Marie Slaughter's article, it's just kind of like we need to see more progress. And you're right. We are seeing some, but I really wish there was more. And, you know, but yet there's also on the individual side, you you talk about this in the book a little bit. And I, I hear this often with with my clients, this tension that people can feel around when they might be going, you talked about wave theory and these times when you might be your oneself experiencing like, hey, I needed downtime versus like being in an up cycle. And yet we can struggle with this tension around, but am I being ambitious enough right now? I mean, I talk to people yes. about this a lot and I'm, yes. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that, like how people might be able to deal with that tension. Yes. You know, I was, I am a perfectionist. I was super ambitious as a young person. Uh, and I think if I had advice from my younger self is to know, to focus on the long game. You know, I think that there is time um, for all of that and there are seasons for all of it. And there will be moments in your career where, um, you know, putting your career um, as a priority might be the right thing to do. And there, and I think as women in particular, as a working mother, I think what we struggle with is that we want to be both the perfect employee and the perfect mother and, you know, show up at all the kids events, do all the, you know, all the things. Um, and one piece of advice I got that was really helpful was it's not the quantity of time, but the quality of time. Um, and so learning, especially as you balancing family, um, that focus on the quality of the time that you're spending with your family and not thinking you have to be at every event because um, also as a role model, I have two daughters uh, role modeling for them that they can have a career as well. Uh, and I think I role modeled that for them. They knew I was always there when they needed me. We had family dinner every night, which was my quality time. Uh, but they also saw me be ambitious and you know, climb the ladder and get the top spot, um, which shows to them when they want to have careers that they too can be ambitious and have a family. So I think 
one of the concepts that I talk about in my book is role modeling and role modeling what not only what it's um, like to be able to sustain balance, but also role modeling authenticity. You know, you know, I think once we get into positions of leadership, back to your other question, how do we change the workplace? I think we have more uh, women now in leaders and uh, leadership positions and more there's, you know, we need a lot more work, but there is some more diversity now and why I'm trying to inspire more of um, the diverse population to be more authentic is because that allows others and gives permission. And so by role modeling that behavior, you'll start creating that environment and giving permission to others um, around you. Mm, I love that. And I appreciate you bringing that forward. Oftentimes when I read books, I see the words on paper and yet when I hear it from an author and have it reiterated, it really sinks in this idea of, again, it comes forward in the sense of when you see it, you can be it, right? That yeah. expression. Mm -hmm. And yet what I'm hearing you say is like, if we don't have those role models demonstrating to us that we can be our authentic selves and that there is a different, for example, model of leadership, one can lead differently than say what's been demonstrated yes. in the past. You don't know that it's safe to show up in that way. So yes, exactly. as you get into that those leadership roles you have more and more on some level responsibility but also permission really exactly. to kind of step into that so i can really appreciate that yeah mm -hmm. i mean you know i'm curious for you what it feels like now in your life and in work when you're showing up this differently and how even maybe success might feel different or if you have more energy like what is it like now on the as you're on you're still on a journey i think yes. as you say in the book yes but you're further along in the journey yes it you know i'll give you an example i just did this um because i'm launching the book soon and and doing a number of different media events and i did this radio show and for a college or university and we actually had to go into the station <laughs> and there was um a young person that was filming it for the university and I didn't realize she was a Latina uh, and she was filming it. And at the end, I had an extra book and I gave it to her and I said, oh, here. And she wrote me this note after and she said, thank you so much for your story. I am also a first generation Latina. I my grandparents had assimilated. They were told they could not you know, speak Spanish. She, as a result, did not learn learn Spanish. Um, she doesn't feel um, brown enough in brown spaces, white enough in white spaces. She doesn't know how to show up in the world. And by just listening to me for those 30 minutes and seeing that I made it to leadership, that, I, that I'm talking about showing up authentically, that my background is no different than hers, she said it changed her life. Like it changed, like she now has a different perspective of how she can show up. And that's one life. So for me, you know, I came home, I told my husband, I'm like, I, you know, I, when I wrote the book, I said, if I can change one life, I will feel successful. Um, and so that's why I wrote this book for moments like that. When I, without even realizing, I didn't even realize you know, that she was actually a reader um, as she was taping it, you know, the, 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 the recording. Um, and so that's what brings me joy right now. That's what success looks like.
Mm, I love that. I was going to ask this next question, and yet you just answered it, I think, Tricia, which is, you know, this this book seems to be a part of your own continual journey of fully stepping into who you are and embracing yourself, and now you're putting it out into the world. And I was going to ask, you know, you talk about the power of story and telling story and what it's been like to tell your story in this way and what you hope is the impact of putting this book into the world. And I think this is such a great illustration of that and what you're hoping for, I would imagine. Oh, it is. It is. And but, you know, it's also it's been an interesting journey. There are moments like that that give me um, fulfillment and why I wrote the book. But honestly, Kathy, there are also other moments where I tell my story um, to an audience that might not be in that same place or might still not um, on the, on the their own DI journey and it falls on deaf ears. And all of the sort of file folders I have of um, you know being unworthy and, and and not be you know my story not mattering come back. Uh, and so I have to continuously practice myself um, as I tell my story that you know it's not going to resonate with all audiences. Um, but with respect to those audiences that it does resonate with, um, I hope I can make a difference. Mm, I appreciate that. And just being honest and transparent about that, because this is such a great conversation. I encourage people to get the book. I, of course, will capture all every all the details in the show notes. But what's I want to ask just what's a final piece of wisdom or counsel you'd leave our listeners with to help them take one small step towards showing up as their authentic selves? Yeah, I would say that if there's something in your life that you may be hiding or downplaying uh, for whatever reason, and it may be your ethnicity, your religion, your sexual orientation, a learning disability, um, that you came from a broken home or you were adopted, there are a number of different things that we have in our minds categorized ourselves as not enough. Uh, to start on the journey of examining what those things are and realizing that you are enough exactly how you are and that those lived experiences and those parts of you actually bring a tremendous value to the conversation and to the workplace. Um, It brings a humanity to to all conversations and to all places. Um, As we design products, as we create uh, services, if we don't have those perspectives and lived experiences in the room, what a disservice to all those like you that are not getting the benefit of your voice. So I think starting with the fact that you are enough and that part of you is actually a beautiful part of you is the first step. Mm, lovely. Well, where can people find more about the book? It's on pre-order now. It's going to come out pretty soon. And how can they keep in touch with you? Yes. So you can find me at trishatim.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-T-I-M-M.com. You can order my book on Amazon or anywhere uh, books are sold. You're in the local bookstore as well and Barnes and Noble. Uh, Join my newsletter. I'm trying to uh, have helpful tips and resources uh, regularly. And um, you can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn actually is where I spend a lot of time uh, with thought leadership. Fabulous. Well, Trisha, thank you so much for telling your story, for having the courage to put this book out into the world and for today's conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Kathy. Thanks for having me. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.